bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here again with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Moggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello, Sir Yoda. We are on an epic worldwide tour today. Again, yes. Today's guest is the CEO of a New Zealand Internet of Technology startup whose ethos began by solving a question posed to its founding partners, that being, how can you monitor and manage indoor air quality across hundreds of thousands of properties simultaneously without any dependencies such as electricity? or network connectivity. Leading the quest to commercialize on that solution is Brandon Van Blurk. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your guys' time. This is quite cool. Brandon, your journey has brought you to the crossroads of several fields of study at a very interesting period of time, to say the least. There are technologies of connectivity, data acquisition, building human sciences, and of course, one of those roads leading away from the intersection is the public relations of your startup and market and sales of its goods and services on an international scale. So how did you find yourself at this place in time? Tell us your story. I'm glad we've got some time. It's a long journey to discuss. How far back do you want to go? Should we go back to when I was a child? Just give us the short version. Okay, the really short version is I'm a born entrepreneur. That comes in multiple examples. Starting at the age of nine, I was sent to boarding school Termly boarding school because my mother didn't love me, so I was basically <laughs> term. I think it was just because I was too naughty, to be honest. But it meant I came home once every three months and I needed to learn how to survive and thrive in a pretty hardcore boarding school in South Africa. I started washing cars and windows for pocket money to go and buy ice creams and stuff. So that was my first, I guess, example of being able to work for yourself and earn your own money. And that just kind of rolled into multiple other entrepreneurial ventures that included things like tuck shop, a dance and movement studio. I built the first Bitcoin payment gateway in New Zealand in 2013. I've been assistant engineering roles for a long time as well. My qualifications include marketing. I've got a diploma in South African wine. I've got a counseling diploma as well, plus a raft of different assistant engineering qualifications. So the majority of, I guess, my skill sets sits within engineering, predominantly systems engineering, started off with enough sort of Microsoft stack type thing. But the whole idea for Tether actually came out of a failed experience with the Bitcoin payment gateway that I started in 2013 in New Zealand. And that was an interesting one because what happened with the Bitcoin side of things is we had the idea right. I think we still have the idea right in terms of where blockchain and cryptocurrency will go. But we had the timing wrong. We just didn't have the other part of the equation, which was the customer, right? So we had the 
ability to do this amazing thing, which was transact in cryptocurrency, integrated into a whole bunch of point of sale systems. But we didn't have the people who are willing to actually use it, which is important. You need both sides of the equation. What that idea gave me, or the failure of crypto to the business's name, what that gave me was an amazing team, the establishment of a team of embedded electronics engineers, software developers that could build stuff. And when you have a team of people that can build stuff and create things, you don't waste that project. You go and look for something else to Mm. do and something else to exploit. So we started another company called Nilo, which was basically just a shell business to go into medium-sized businesses or small businesses that had no capital to build software and there was no SaaS product, software as a service product that they could leverage. We would see if we could capitalize on that idea either by front-forwarding a software as a service agreement. So we'd basically build the software for free. We would own the IP and then they would pay for a software as a service agreement over a period of time, which would then recoup on, on our capital cost to build the platform itself. But we would own the IP because they weren't essentially paying for it, right? And that way we could either generate the revenue on that SaaS model, or we could then sell the product to a wider market if there was any sort of potential there. One of the first organizations that took us up on this ideology was the New Zealand Green Building Council, which you guys may know of. And this is back in the day when Alex Cutler was still CEO. She may watch this, I don't know, maybe not. We were looking to build a platform that would automate the Homestar accreditation process. That was back then when Homestar got put into what we called the Auckland Unitary Plan, which meant that every home that was basically built within Auckland needed to have a Homestar assessment done on it. So it went from, from having a, a very small amount of interest to a, a huge amount of interest almost overnight. And the potential stress that that would have caused to the business was huge, and they needed a way to make their application process a lot easier. So we came in with a proposal to try and speed that up. And what that gave us was some very deep insights into at least how the Zimbabwe Building Council deem healthy home to be, but also the accreditation process and also the weaknesses within the accreditation process and what was actually lacking. Now, that project died when Alex got moved on as CEO, equals of Sam Archer, got brought in as the CEO and, and I guess the Director of Innovation, I think his title is now Sam Archer. When it died and they moved on in their own direction, me being the born entrepreneur, I didn't want to just sit on my laurels and go, well, that sucks, let me just move on to something different. What we had was essentially six months worth of, or even more than six months of really in-depth R&D on what the problems with something like Homestar were, but also what the industry needed, which in one sentence can be surmised as a way to cost-effectively render some post-occupancy valuation techniques, so environmental quality and energy usage of buildings without any reliance on the building's utilities, meaning no reliance on the building's Wi-Fi connectivity no reliance on the building's energy at all. So battery-operated, IoT-connected devices, and then a platform to link it all together and to try and get some sort of deep insights out of the building. So that started our our journey with that and how we did it, because we didn't want to make the same mistake as we did with crypto, right? When we think that we have something that's good, but we have no one that wants to buy it. So you go, okay, well, who's your customer? Who's actually going to be spending money on this? So instead of going and spending a lot of time and money in building something, hoping that there would be a customer at the end of it. We built a prototype that was, quite frankly, smoke and mirrors and some sensors that did some connection. And then went and found a customer on that preface and ended up winning two major contracts with having very little information or having very little to show for it. And then once we'd won those contracts, we then had to build really quickly. Essentially, once we had figured out there was this gap in the market in terms of having scalable and low-cost post-occupancy evaluation techniques. We needed to then build this technology, but we didn't want to make the same mistakes in the past, which was we don't know whether anyone's actually going to buy this, whether there's any value. We think that there's a problem here that we can solve technically with a technical solution, but we need a customer. We need someone, an anchor customer, that can basically give us the go-ahead to put a whole bunch of money into R&D to start building this company. We then... in very quick succession, won two major contracts with government organizations with having just prototypes and some very loose platform type development that we had done. And within four months, we had to build an entire platform, API structure, and develop our first sensor at that stage, which is called EnviroQ. Within four months, we had to manufacture almost close to a thousand, which was a huge amount of pressure. But I guess this is one of the key things is 
don't sell something unless you know you can deliver it. And so <laughs> from our perspective, we were confident enough that if we had won something of this nature, we would be able to run hard enough to actually develop it. And with winning those anchor customers, it then gave us the confidence and even the revenue to be able to continue to develop Tether, which is now two and a half years, almost three years down the track, a much bigger and wider business in terms of its applications and what we do. We can go into more detail about the structure of the business if you want. But essentially, that was the birth of it. The birth of it was just you know, a long string of entrepreneurial failed ventures that then leaded into one big opportunity with a quick win or two quick wins that were massive. And the timing was absolutely perfect because the whole healthy home movement has just started to gain up speed over the last couple of years in New Zealand. The idea around the built environment not being seen or measured correctly, there was a lot of counter-narrative that was saying that people can't do this, it's impossible, it's too hard, too expensive, all these no statements, which is music to my ears because being someone who's never been in the building industry at all, like my experience within the building industry is the last three years building a technology company in the building industry, although my mother was in construction and real estate her entire life. So, you know, I've got that sort of upbringing. But I'm coming into this industry as a complete outlier. I've learned everything that I know about the build industry over the last few years. What I know is how to build products and technology. I understand how to solve people's problems using a technological roadmap of sorts, whether that's hardware or software, a combination of the two. That's sort of the founding story of Tether. That's interesting. So, <clears throat> first of all, congratulations. You hit a bit of a bingo card there because you've got Bitcoin, <laughs> IoT all in there. So kudos on that. <laughs> yeah. It's what happens when you're a nerd, right? Like I just naturally gravitate to the stuff. It's my lifeblood. I search the stuff up on YouTube as my daily consumption. Just anything to do with technology or where we're going from a technological advancement perspective. It's my passion. So for me, it's not hard work at all. It's kind of just been fun, really, and expensive. Yeah. Interesting hearing the genesis of that because, like all good businesses, they're normally like it's a zigzag process. Right, I try this, didn't quite work, or the timing is wrong. People really do underestimate the power of timing when you're bringing technology to bear. A lot of people, a lot of my personal career has been in professional services, so the timing element is a factor, but it's not a huge factor. But when you add technology on top of that, it's everything. One hundred percent, everything. In fact, you know, I've always maintained two things: timing will always happen. Either you run out of money before the timing happens, or you have enough steam to get to the time when you need to be. But a lot of people try and time everything perfectly with their revenue generation. So this is why you have these startups that have multiple venture capital rounds and stuff because they keep waiting for the timing to happen, and they want to be ready for when that time is there. Right? It's like catching a wave. Sometimes you have to sit in the ocean for. 20, 30, 40 minutes before the perfect wave comes. And if you yeah. get cold out in the ocean, you're like, well, bugger this. You could miss the perfect wave. Or you just could be too late. You could see the perfect wave happening. And now you're trying to paddle frantically to try and catch it, and you end up getting ducked. It's a very interesting thing to have to deal with because it's out of your control. There's nothing <laughs> you can do about timing. You just have to be there at the right time. That's the biggest challenge. A lot of people try and guess it, but it's impossible to help. Couldn't agree more with that. So the timing thing is really interesting to me because I'm a big fan of technology and the application of technology onto existing problems, which is what we're talking about here, right? Mm. And I think people who are embedded in professional services, particularly engineering and construction, are just, they're normally enthusiastic users of technology, but they're generally following technology rather than leading it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I, I see what you're doing here as leading a wave rather than following a wave. You know what I think Tether's unique proposition will ultimately be. I mean, yeah. if you talk about the built environment, what I found is in the last three years that I've been in this industry, it is so protected by vested interests and people <laughs> with walled gardens and stuff like that. It's insane. So all the technology and stuff is for that industry. It's not for the wider network. I mean, you know, the complexities around it, the jargon that's used, it's so inaccessible for the general populace to get a handle of that I think what Tether is attempting to do and will continue to do is to try and take all the complexity out of what is not necessarily a complex thing when you start to go down to the bare fundamentals of it. But that comes with a whole bunch of issues, right? Because all of a sudden you have people who are best they're protecting their space, whether it's the rating industry, whether it's people that are trying to sell particular systems. They're all trying to hold on 
to this industry without actually understanding what the ultimate value needs to be, which is people live in houses. Houses don't live in houses. People live in houses. And so <laughs> you need to look after the people. And it's the people you should be building the applications for, the technology for. And if you're not, then what the hell are you doing? This is my thing is, you know, what we do is we build consumer-led products. And we're trying to take complex building environment or environmental sciences and we basically take them back into consumer-driven applications and applications of that data. So the data is the data, whether it's environmental quality, air quality, energy usage, water consumption, that data can be collected. And I can talk to you about our devices and how it does that. But it's the interpretation of that information and how that's relayed back to the people that's living in that house. So how do they run their homes more effectively as a, on a basis of the foundation that, that, that their home is built on? So you would know every single house is, is different. It'll be designed differently. It'll have different thermal envelope. It'll be in a different geographic region with a different orientation and a different shape, blah, 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 blah. You'll have all these aspects of it. But unless you understand what that house is and the foundation and the core of that house, it becomes really difficult to tell the person or the people living in that home how to run it effectively. The metaphor that I use quite often is one of a racing car, right? So houses should be more like, and I think Adam, you've said this before, where homes should be more like cars. Yeah. I think you were saying from a different aspect though, but you can have a Formula One car, which let me tell you is incredibly difficult to drive. I don't know if you've ever seen Top Gear oh, and yeah. Richard Hammond tried to drive a racing car and stalled it five times, right? The fastest vehicle in the world, no matter how complex and well-built it is, unless you have someone who can drive it effectively, it's useless. In the same way, you can put, you know, Lewis Hamilton into a 1300 car and he'll maybe be able to drive to the best of its ability, but it's never going to perform as fast as somebody, just an average person driving a Mercedes-Benz, for example. So you've got two aspects. You've got the home and then you've got the people driving the home. And a lot of times the built environment won't focus on the home because that's where their vested interest is. And they feel like they don't have the ability to impact the people living in that home or driving that home. What Tether wants to do is they want to go, well, here's your home. We're going to show you what it actually looks like and how it performs, what it's most capable of. But here's what you can do as the driver of that home to ensure that you're actually performing to the best of your ability. And that could be you know, in a number of different ways. Well, you're speaking to the right person because Robert's speciality and personal 30-plus year quest or cross on his back, whichever way you want to call it, is about indoor air quality and the quality of home design, i.e. designing it for people, right? Well, the whole indoor environment, so not just air quality, but thermal, light, sound, all of that. And what happened, Brandon, again, entrepreneurial like Adam and yourself, when I was 40, I sold my last company to a large Danish company and had to decide what I wanted to do. I was too young to retire back then. So I went on a self-funded education on human physiology and psychology as related to the built environment. I already had two licenses to practice engineering, one in building construction, one in mechanical engineering. So I really understood buildings. And plus, I had been in the house building business. So anyways, so going back to the story, we would design to code, and we, but we would still have people complaining. And so I was trying to figure out, well, what's the missing link here? Of course, it was the human factors. And until we understood what human physiology and human psychology was all about within the built environment, we were never going to solve the problem. So Robert's been on a quest over the last 30 plus years to dedicate his engineering life to indoor air quality and better home comfort for occupants, right? Design buildings for humans. Is that right, Robert? Yes. Our motto is design for people, good buildings follow. And what happened was, you know, when I sold my business, you know, I was a young man, entrepreneur, much like you two guys. We just couldn't figure out why it was when we would design buildings that although we would be in compliance with the code, our clients still weren't happy with the space. So I went on a sort of a self-funded journey of studying human physiology and human psychology that related to the built environment. And of course, that led me down much similar journeys trying to solve that problem as you have, Brandon. And ultimately, it comes down to really understanding people, how people experience spaces, how they interact with the spaces and the systems that are available to them in their buildings. And of course, as an industry, oftentimes we think that our clients have the same technical capabilities that we do as engineers when the reality is, is that they don't. And you know, there was a term, I didn't create the term, I think it's a great term though, it's called jargon monoxide. Our, <laughs> industry, <laughs> our industry uses jargon monoxide 
And what we need to do is really to understand the language of the client, which is I'm hot, I'm cold, it's dry, it's drafty, it's loud, it's dark. And these are the terms that they use to communicate with. And when we start to understand that, then we can forget the codes, just design buildings so that we speak their language. And ultimately what happens if we can satisfy that language that we get good results. Yeah, actually, Brendan, I see one of the problems you have to solve for, I think, is people don't know what they don't know, right? So you buy a house, you live in it, and there's chaos and kids and Mm. hot, it's cold, it's rainy, things need fixing. But most people don't understand the distinction between humidity, temperature, indoor air quality, you know, these other sort of soft metrics, if you like, and how they impact that comfort, right? There's a lot of talk at the moment about humidity because of the co-virus crisis. But giving people the ability to measure and quantify that is one thing. But the other step is helping them understand what to do with that information. Have you got any way of addressing that? You've just hit the nail on the head. There's multiple steps to solving this problem, right? right? If you look at the ultimate goal, which is give people absolute insight into what's going on in their home from an environmental quality, energy usage, water usage, my health, my money, my planet type narrative. To get to that place, you need a lot of infrastructure, right? And you need, you need to be able to build up the tools to measure that stuff. And someone needs to pay for those tools. And you need to be able to create value around people paying for those tools. And then you need you know, contextual information around the building itself. And how do you get someone to collect that contextual information so that it's actually valuable? So you know, rather than just people doing charity projects to try and do this stuff, every single step of the process needs someone who's willing to pay for it because they get value out of that particular step until you get to the final step, which is how do I educate occupants and things on environmental quality energy usage? And then how do you tie it back to something that they actually care about, right? Because a lot of humans, are they're all just acute. They care about what's happening right now. So I'm cold now. What do I do about it? You know, I'm hot now. What do I do about it? It's feeling muggy. It's too loud. It's too bright. They're not thinking about, oh, it's been hot and humid for the last six months. So there's probably a chance I've got interstitial mold growing in my wall. They don't think about stuff like that. Humans don't think about that. So what Tether does and what we are continuing to attempt to do is take all the information that we're collecting through our environmental quality energy use stuff, which companies are paying for because they have a different value proposition, which is around risk assessment across multiple buildings, multiple yeah. homes, hundreds of thousands of homes simultaneously. And we're distilling that information into education bite-sized chunks that get delivered through a what we call a tenant mobile app or the tethered mobile application app. How tethered differentiates itself to your standard environmental quality gadget out there. So you know you go to whatever tech store and you can go buy an environmental quality sensor and it comes with an app and a dashboard and you can set up alerts and stuff. Even that is a little bit too complex. What that solution does is it doesn't allow any contextual information to flow through to the occupant. So you have to provide context to that data continuously. So I take this sensor that I bought from my tech store, my Best Buy or whatever it is you have in in Canada in the States, and I put that sensor in my baby's room. Now, the manufacturer of that sensor doesn't know it's in a baby's room. They just have very high-level information around what temperature, humidity, carbon dioxide, volatility, compounds, whatever those things. They've got the general view of what that means. But as soon as you know the context of that room, so you know it's a baby's room, you know it has one window of a particular dimension with single glazed glass, and it's got you know R2.4, whatever insulation in the walls, and doesn't have any extraction fan or no HVAC system or anything like that. When you have that kind of context, then the information that you can push to the tenants is far more valuable because you know it's a baby's room. You know that a baby's room is supposed to function between 20 degrees and 22 degrees or whatever it is, Celsius, or 24 degrees Celsius. Anything outside of that can start to become you know, dangerous. Relative humidity needs to be between you know, 40 and 60 or whatever you want it to be for that particular room. And you can start to mold your alerts, your action items, your insights around that particular context, which is what Tether is doing differently. So what we do is we collect structural information around the building. So we actually know it's a baby's room. We know the dimensions of the room. We know the dimensions of the window. We know what the type of glass in the window is. We understand whether there's a extraction fan, an HVAC system or whatever within that room. And then you apply a sensor to that context. And then what we do and are continuing to do is to provide more value around acute action points 
as a result of that context that we've built up over time. This is a long, long process. Yeah. I'm not saying here that we have this whole solution ready to rumble. What I'm saying is we have all the parts that are required to develop and deliver this end result, which is the insight that the people need, people that are living inside heart. So you, Rob, coming from two sides here to try and get the same outcome. I mean, the outcome is high levels of comfort for the minimal viable energy input and the lowest possible cost in terms of running costs. So Robert's angle is let's design and build these things properly and really take into effect, let's design for humidity, for comfort, for indoor air quality, for mold prevention. Big issue, right? You're coming from, and Tether is coming from, let's get this data in and then we can set alerts up. Like Tether could be saying, and this is like a intelligent house without the creepiness of how watching what you're doing, right? What we're saying is, you could say, right, based on this humidity, this temperature, and what's going on at the moment, there is a danger of mold growing here. That could be an alert or a nudge to do something, right? Is that how Correct. I read that? Correct. A whole narrative, I guess, is if your home had a voice, what would it say to you, right? So like treating <laughs> your home, if your home was a person, if it was an actual individual, what would it say? You know, if it was feeling sick, what would it say to you? If it had an issue in a particular organ, like a bedroom, how would it communicate that to you? And then it gives you, the person who lives in that home, the ability to action it. So a bit like a child in some respect, where, you know, daddy, my stomach is sore, and what do I do about that? Okay, well, let's try and help you out with it. The problem is people don't think buildings can speak. They get it as a reflection on their own comfort levels and their own, you know, ability to feel comfortable within that space. What we're trying to do is flip the narrative. I don't care about you specifically, although we can do, we've got surveys and stuff because we, we do believe that people are important, but... Step number one, what we care about is making the home a digital persona, giving it a life, breathing life into it, and giving it the ability to speak. And in order to do that, you need to know what it's built out of. You need to understand its parts, the prescriptive nature of it. And then you need to be able to apply continuous feedback mechanisms, which is what our sensors do, our environmental quality, energy usage sensors, that kind of stuff. Once you have that data, you then have the ability to communicate. And how you communicate and the messages that you say is still up for grabs, let me be honest, because we're still learning here, all right? Like massively still learning here. But once you've got the foundation, once you understand the as-built environment and you have the ability to report in real time what's happening within the environment without any reliance on the people living in that space, whether the space is completely vacant, there's been no one living in that home for the last six months, that doesn't matter from Taylor's perspective. We continue to monitor. We continue to know what the home is built out of. So that information means that we can turn what was previously seen as just some sort of weird object that you pay a lot of money for into a living object, which it does. You know, mold will continue to grow, whether there's someone living in a house or not. The house will break down, whether there's yeah, someone living or not. It doesn't need your permission to grow. that's what's cool about this brandon is that i'm taking a guess here but this is probably going back almost 15 if not 20 years ago there was a scientist by the name of chris peister who his whole study was in nanotechnology and he developed early forms of what they call nano dust which were basically environmental sensors that could be put into the walls through painting right so you would mix your paint put in the dust and then you would paint this on the walls, and then the walls actually became sensors. And that if you could address those sensors with occupant information, so let's just say, for example, if it was a senior care facility, right? So you could actually wear a communicating device or your client could wear a communicating device, and the building would know who was in that space and what their environmental needs were. You know, this is going back a long, long time ago. What you're doing here in many ways, is linking these worlds, you know, the early studies in nanotechnology to your world of data acquisition, but then also being able to have that dialogue with the building, which I think is, is really, really cool stuff. I mean, yeah. Adam, I, I wish I had another lifetime because I know design will be a different world 50 years from now, 100 years from now, as it was For in the sure. past. And Brandon, going back, I mean, you're more focused on the housing, although you'll migrate, mm-hmm. obviously, into other areas. But the mm-hmm. Center for the Built Environment have you know, obviously been doing a lot of with post-occupancy evaluations for many, many years. They just released a study here a couple of years ago. They studied 58,000 people that participated in a post-occupancy evaluation, found out that less than 2% of the buildings that these people were occupying failed to be in compliance with ASHRAE Standard 55. Less than 2%. 
That's how bad the commercial world is, right? Well, we know that same world exists in housing. So the data is good. It tells us that buildings suck. But at some point, what CBE had been trying to do with that is to educate architects and engineers using their online tools to point out that when you design, it's an if-then statement. If you do this in your architecture, then here are the consequences. And here's how you prevent that from happening. Have you been following what the CBE guys have been doing at all? Or? No, I haven't. But you also have a guy in Australia, Dr. Dajir, who's done a lot of work with Adaptive Comfort and a lot of work with ISO 7730 and 55. He's down in your neck of the woods. Not a big flight from New Zealand to Australia, no, right? three hours. Yeah, three hours. The thing is, right, what I've also noticed is there's a lot of information about this stuff. This is not new to your point, Robert. This is yeah. something that's been around for decades. The biggest problem is it's never been marketable, never been sellable. It's never been anything that people are willing to buy because they don't see the real-time benefits now. What you're dealing with is a disconnect between scientific accuracy and the ability to sell a product a marketable product that actually that has a perceived value that's now, presently, and a future benefit. So in New Zealand, it's well known that houses don't last more than 50 years, if not less. It's like a 15-year cycle, basically, until things need to be changed. It's just crazy. I mean, where wow. I come from, you know, native land of South Africa, every house is built out of double brick, pretty much. You know, it's the whole term, built like a brick shit house, probably comes from South Africa. <laughs> you know the problem is not the lack of knowledge or the lack of industry buy-in. The problem is the lack of outside industry buy-in and that practical application of this knowledge into products that have real-time value cycles. This is where I think Tether is trying to differentiate itself. It's trying to take technology that we've known has existed for a very long period of time, but turn it into something that a market wants. So, you know, consumers actually want. So, a true consumer-led IoT-type application of as-built science, but in a way that has multiple different value points so that the business survives. At its infancy, when Tether was first founded, and it was self-funded as well, so we haven't raised any venture capital at all, so that was thanks to cryptocurrency. But the way that we made money to start with was just selling devices. That's all we did. We just sold hardware. And because selling hardware has got a very quick return, right? You sell a piece of hardware, you make some margin, you get money back, you pump it into the business. If you're building a SaaS product, software product, you have to either have seriously deep pockets because you don't have any value until a platform is released. And that platform doesn't have enough value until there's enough features within the platform that the market actually thinks it's a valuable product. So you've got 12 to 24 months at least of serious burn before you have something that's worth its while outside of the very, very early adopter stage. What Tether's done is it started by going, okay, what do we want to do? We need data acquisition. We need to be able to get information from a building yeah. without reliance on a, on a building's utilities. That has a very quick rate of return. So we develop this tech, we can sell it as hardware, we can develop some APIs and stuff. Don't worry about the software yet, we'll get to that point. Once you start getting people excited about the hardware, then you can start to look at, well, what do you do with this data? This is the yeah. exciting part of the business. Because selling hardware, yeah. let me tell you, is a shit business. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. There will be better devices that come up than Tether's current devices. And to be quite frank with you, we will partner with those companies. I don't want to have anything to do with developing more hardware. It's a shit business. But you needed that, or Tether needed that, to springboard into what we're good at, which is building software. So over the last three years, we've been looking at, well, how do we take the data that we're now acquiring, environmental quality, air quality, energy usage data, and how do we make that data usable and valuable for a whole range of different target markets or verticals. First vertical being, which is the one that we primarily focus on now, is any large-scale property development or management organization that have a social and financial responsibility for ensuring the healthiness of an asset and the people living in that asset or home. That puts us in state housing, schools, aged care facilities, yeah. <laughs> daycare centers, that type of thing. And the value that they get is predominantly just around risk management understanding, well, how risky is my building to live in or to work in or to be educated in? And what can I do now to improve my build practices going forward? You know, not just in terms of health and comfort and things, but also in terms of things like cost, in terms of carbon impact, so whether that's embodied or operational carbon <coughs> or what that looks like. So all of this stuff is a very different focus in terms of the value that Ted delivers to ultimately where we want to be, which is how do we get people 
interacting with their homes in a better way or their offices in a better way. But you need all these foundations. You need all the pillars, these foundations, yeah. before you get to that end goal. If you're a tech business, I mean, for any competitor out there that wants to try and follow this roadmap, if you're a tech business, you do not want to try and develop the end goal now because the end goal is so far away, you know, in terms of years, that by the time you get there, you've completely lost the plot. You just don't know mm. what's going on. At least my perspective has always been quick, small, iterative design phases. Make sure that you have feature releases and things that appeal to your particular target market and vertical. You know, as long as it's within the same overall goals of the business, which is, you know, enabling healthy and energy efficient living, learning and working environments, that's our current statement, then we're good. We're good to go. And there'll be a whole bunch of things that will tap onto the business that'll enable that end goal. But you need the multiple value points and revenue streams to come in. I think you're right. I mean, the mass data acquisition, if you want, or mass data point acquisition is most valuable to people who manage risk through large property portfolios. For residential users, for myself, say, it would be valuable in terms of enhancing my comfort. But if there was a movement towards carbon reported or based in part of property yep. tax towards carbon reporting and energy efficiency, that would be a game changer, right? Because then you're giving people the tools to manage their energy use, their carbon footprint. So yeah, I think you hit, you're right. you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I think the first pivot towards big landlords with lots of tenants is a smart move. And I think there's value in that. And then there's almost a parallel game there, starting with the high-end passive house type people who want to know their carbon footprint, their energy footprint. Because at some point in the future, I believe there is a tax coming down the road called carbon or energy tax, which will be tacked onto property tax because every municipality is broke. And after this virus, they're going to be extra broke. Mm. And this will be a way they're going to raise revenue, right? I read last week that the city of Vancouver thinks they might go broke because 25% of people haven't paid their property taxes because they can't. You know, how many times does that get copy and pasted around the world? Yeah. Well, another interesting movement, which we'll have to wait and see if this happens, is the abolishment of the opulent office, right? Like, so yes. imagine imagine <laughs> this, this move towards working from home and then your office is basically a space, a bit like the old town village, right? Where people yeah. come to socialize, connect, re-energize, be reinvigorated by the leadership, and then go back to their home offices and things to do the work, to actually get things done. The interesting thing, and I'm probably slightly unique in this, but because Tether is essentially a software development business or tech business, we have never been more productive than over this COVID break yeah. because geeks like to stay indoors and they like to do shit while they're by themselves. They don't want to be, yeah. like if you've ever gone into a software company, they're all wearing headphones and just have their heads down on keyboards, right? That's the natural happy place of any geek. And so if you're just telling them what to do and then using collaborative skills and tools and things like Slack and so forth, the amount of code that we've written over the last two months has been insane compared to our cadence over the last two years. You might find that there's certain industries that just go, I don't want the big office with huge running costs and massive BMS systems and you know facilities managers that are you know paying to deal with. Why? What benefit am I getting from this? I might as well just try and do things differently. I think it might be a new future trend. Actually, I believe there will be one of the outcomes from this crisis and this sort of like societal reset of some degree is going to be stranded assets and abandoned assets in real estate. I've had professional services businesses. If I was starting them again today, they would be virtual businesses and I would just jump in a co-working space for a once a week all hands meeting. Yeah. So if you look at downtown Calgary, so I don't know if you're aware of our economic conditions here prior to the pandemic, but Alberta was an oil and gas province. I mean, our revenue is a big part of our tax bases and the wealth that we had and the enjoyments that we had as a result of the money that we had in the province basically disappeared with the oil and gas industry. We have buildings in downtown Calgary, you know, some of the big, taller, brand newer ones, they're like 70, 80% vacancy rates. These are wow. huge, huge assets that are empty. And now with the pandemic, no one's reported yet what the vacancy rate is during the pandemic. But I would say just a wild guess based on you know, the lack of traffic in the downtown core and I'm staring at it right now. This is a working day. There's right now one of the main streets that I'm staring at. Normally there would be probably a couple hundred cars. There's like 20, 30 cars. There's nobody. Yeah. It's a ghost town. You know, Adam, I would guess that right now the vacancy rate downtown Calgary is probably pushing close to 55, 60% right now. The whole that wouldn't surprise downtown. me. I mean, I have a real estate background. That's just not viable. You can't pay your loans at that point. No, you can't. And so what's happened is that you've had not the big national players, but the regional players. 
maybe they own 20, 30 properties, right? Well, one of the big guys just declared bankruptcy here not too long ago. And they've got three properties downtown that are unfinished. So the messages here about stranded assets hits home here, right in town, in front of us right now as we speak. And the whole change in the office environment, I am with you, Brandon. The narcissist, egotistical, high-rise executive who had the corner suite, go ahead, buddy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, which corner do you want? Because there's so many corner offices, you can pick whatever one you want. Them days are gone, right? The guy who drives down in his big BMW to his corner glass building office, <laughs> they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. They went away with the end of the baby boomers. The uppies. I don't know why it's so appealing either, to be honest. I can't think of anything worse. Like, it just, to me, and again, I don't know how unique I am in this, but I just spent a lot of money on my home streaming gear, which is yet to arrive because of COVID stuff. But I think. If you can design a home for a really nice working environment, so whether that's an outdoor little cottage thing that you can have, all your stuff there so you feel comfortable, you've got all the technology you need to collaborate. For me personally, that would be awesome. That'd be the best case. And then I can go and you know do my social. I can go to restaurants and bars and stuff and, and catch up with my mates or have meetings in different locations. And that sounds amazing. And then when you want to get real work done, where well, you don't want to be interrupted anyway, you go back to your sanctuary. Yeah, and you sit there, you turn the lights on, everything looks amazing, and you just get the work done. Yeah. It's your fortress of solitude, right? Whenever you walk into an office and someone's got headphones on, that person needs an office on their own. Yeah. I mean, so anyway. Brandon, you're a young person and hashtag not a baby boomer, right? So I'm a baby boomer, a child (laughs) of Thatcher. He who dies with the most toys wins in my generation. Yeah, well, that's not going to work very much, is it? It's not. Them days are gone. It's just... Some baby boomers know that, and plenty of them do not, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, although yeah. you don't have a gold Rolex, though. No, 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 not yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> the Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time. And now, back to the show. Well, both Adam and I have nomad careers. I mean, we travel. And the jobs that we have had have basically been driven by our own desire to be adventurous, to see the world through our own profession, our own skill sets, Mm -hmm. and understanding that there are no walls in our offices. There are none. Yeah. Wherever we are, so goes our business. Absolutely. Yeah, as it should be. We're yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Towards the end, we do some quick fire questions at the end, but just before we get to that, with regards to Tether, if I sort of flash you forward five years, what would things look like for Tether? I would like every home that's built to be tethered, basically. So in New Zealand, I want at least the concept of Tether to be built into the building code, because I don't think we can get away from codes, yeah. unfortunately. If we could, that would be a great result. But I would like to see people become comfortable with the idea of their homes talking back to them and the technology within those homes being set. So obviously, personal interest, obviously, Tether would be fantastic. But if it's something else, then so be it. But people are scared of data. I think they're worried about the whole privacy thing as well, because there's been some bad narratives run around privacy. I've got a very different outlook on the whole privacy conversation. But in five years' time, I want... Tethered to be in as many homes as possible, both brand new builds as permanent fixtures wired into the walls or as retrofits into existing homes so that those homes can essentially talk, educate, help people run their home in the most efficient okay. way. Oh, and building, yeah. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you about the privacy thing because secretly <laughs> I want to live in Montana with a tinfoil hat on my head, I think. So <laughs> <laughs> I noticed you said I've got some sort of thoughts on privacy. For me, I'm a conundrum. I am a huge supporter of technology, but I'm a really private person. And I find Google and Facebook obnoxious in the extreme. They scare the living life out of me. 
What's your take on privacy around this? So this may be a slightly controversial take, so just yeah. take where it comes from. But my view is that nobody gives a fuck about you, Bren, as a single data point. What they care right. about is you as an aggregated data point. A lot of people put an elevated sense of importance or value on their personal information. Unless it's your credit card, social security, identification, that's super personal, which you should never be sharing anyway. Yeah. The data doesn't matter. The temperature in your bedroom last night is not worth shit. It's worth nothing, right? And so there is certain pieces of data which are valuable from a privacy perspective because they can be used to manipulate you or steal things from you, right? So any piece of information that is that valuable that can be used to exploit you in a particular way or to do physical or digital harm to you should be seen as something that is incredibly private. But your day-to-day stuff you know, this context, the environmental quality within your home or where you move to, providing that it can't be used to basically track you and do something with it. The chances of that actually being used against you are pretty much zero, right? What these companies do is they want to know the aggregated average information to be able to either sell more product or swing a public opinion and you'll be used as part of that opinion. So they use this information to propagandize or to sell product to do stuff. And that means that the company is not acting in good faith. You'll always get good faith and non-good faith operators in the world, and and data is easy to come by. But from a privacy perspective, I think that people don't quite understand what that term actually means and what their data can actually be used for. I think that's where the misunderstanding lies. So a lot of people just get into this complete protectionist side of things. They go, well, I'm shutting off completely from the digital world because I'm going to be exploited. I'm personally going to be exploited. I'm yet to find anybody that can tell me they've been personally exploited from any data breach other than email addresses and passwords and credit card numbers. And that might be because you end up on some sort of email address or you know, your email gets hacked or something like that, in which case people have access to your personal email or have access to a different accounts and things. So these are, this is different. This is a, a breach of a personal identifier and a password that allows people to exploit you personally. But when it comes to just general type of information, it's meaningless in terms of I, what... Yeah, is. I'm not scared of the Russian troll. I'm more scared mm. of government access to tracking data. So just to close this conversation out then, Snowden, hero or zero? There's only one answer. No middle. You've got to choose one. Ah, uh, fuck. I'll, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll say hero. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, yeah hero, okay. for sure. I'm a big fan of transparency. For me, yeah. I don't like yeah. closed doors at all. I think mm. transparency is the reason why people don't believe. I think, you know, integrity and trust is the world's most valuable commodity, 100%. And yeah. as soon as you lose integrity and trust, you're stuck. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that in the absence of information, people will make up their own shit, right? Yes. And true or false, it's just the way it is. People will come to their own conclusion. Because they don't have access to the information as but you, know, so, you know what yeah. the problem is, Robert? Is there yeah. is so much goddamn information out there at the moment, it is impossible to make wind of what's real and what's not. Yeah, that's true. It's insane. This is the thing, is that everybody can find a study or some sort of thing to talk about their narrative, right? And to try and help yeah. them elevate themselves. It's nuts. Even highly valued academics are essentially in the Ponzi seam of academia, right? It's kind of yeah, like yeah. they're constantly <laughs> so so, yeah, it's <laughs> so true. Yeah, it's so yeah. true. Well, one thing that's good about Tether is when someone says, I'm freezing, you can pretty well much assure that they're freezing. I mean, we deal with realities when it comes to the built environment, so no one's making up shit. And all you have to do, if you want to do a really sophisticated validation whether people are comfortable in their homes or not, just Google thermostat wars. <laughs> yeah. Right? I'll, I'll Google that. <laughs> you know, I'll Google you'll that. Get, you got like 26 million responses of people saying... I'm freaking cold, right? Or I'm freaking hot. Or, and by the way, there was a lady in Texas who killed her husband over a thermostat war. <laughs> so you want to talk about dissatisfaction with the building? Wow. That's an extreme response system. <laughs> That's crazy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so anyways, yeah. First question, Adam. Brandon, you're standing in front of the class of 2020 graduating students out of every architectural engineering program on the continent, what are your words of advice to these young kids coming out of university? Christian, everything you've been told in the last five years. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I love it. 
Yeah, so you question everything and then what? Forget it all. <laughs> Start, again. <laughs> <laughs> Start again, ask for a refund. Yeah, well, I mean, I th- it's about to give a little bit more detail, I think that a lot of it's about practical application of things. People don't start learning until they actually practically apply the things they've learned and they realize whether the things they've learned actually work or don't work in the real life. There's no substitute for practical application. And so, you know, I think the universities, although academia is incredibly important, without the application of that academia, it's worthless. It means that it's, you know, it's basically, like I said, just the Ponzi scheme of education. So it's a case of if you've learned something and you find it incredibly fascinating, you believe that it provides value to the world, go and apply it to things, to industry, create value. Mm. Don't just sit with the knowledge in your head, use it for something. And then you may find that it actually doesn't work the way you thought it worked. And then you can innovate on it. You can reiterate, you can go, well, how can I make this work? What can I do different? And then you apply that and you just keep going. This is how growth happens. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah, like that. Okay, so just my quick fire question then, from an entrepreneur's point of view, someone's graduated university, they're out there, they've got a little pot of money and they want to start a business. Where would you point them to? What direction would you point them to? It really comes down to them and their passion, right? Like I know a lot of people throw around this whole passion thing just willy-nilly, but being an entrepreneur doesn't necessarily mean you like a particular industry or business. It just means you like starting businesses and you have the wherewithal to deal with failure, right? So my best yeah. advice would be start failing or just start doing something. So instead of trying to figure out, instead of trying to find like the best thing or the next biggest, you know, next Facebook or next best widget, do business, be an entrepreneur, start something. Through my career, it's been five businesses until Tether. They started from, you know, like I said, washing windows and cars at the age of nine, you know, to tuck shops and dance and movement studios and, and Bitcoin business. And so... It hasn't been about a particular thing. It's been about starting something and then working through it and finding out how does business work. Business in itself is a skill. You know, people forget that starting a business is not just about having a good idea. There's a very, very, very small percentage of businesses are successful on the idea alone. In fact, I don't yep. think any are, to be honest. It's not the idea. It's the execution around managing people. It's around financial stuff, the legal stuff. It's how do you sell this? How do you market it? How do you build the product? How do you keep people together? It is such a crazy whirlwind. You guys know. I mean, I've been preaching oh, yeah. you know, the entrepreneurial game. So I'd say just start because there's too many things to focus on individually. It's kind of just start and just see where you go. That's a good message to put out there because the problem with the Facebook, Apple myth, you know, we start in the garage, the Google, we start in the garage, we wound up billionaires. Yes, that happened to them. But Scott Galloway would say, you know, assume you're not them. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. you're not. Because <laughs> you're not. Because you're not. You've got to do what you did. I mean, I've had some successful businesses, I've had some failures. You just have to be able to pick yourself up and pivot and carry on or try something new, right? That's yeah. the message that I think business schools don't deliver very well. Entrepreneurship is a game of try it, get punched in the face, get knocked down, get picked up, right? It's not a smooth glide path to great idea, funding, corner office, island in the Caribbean. It's not like that. I've always find entrepreneurial courses infuriating because how can you teach a practical course, you know, academically? It's just how do you teach resilience, right? How do you teach entrepreneurship? How do you teach that? Yeah, how do you teach it? You know, it's like, it's the old adage, you know, everybody thinks that they can fight until they get punched in the mouth. It's the same thing. Absolutely. Totally an attitude thing. And I find that there's those that are just naturally born to survive. They will not quit. And, you know, like I played hockey. I wasn't a great hockey player. In fact, I was a terrible hockey player, but I kept making the teams because I didn't know when to quit. (laughs) (laughs) I get whacked. I take a puck in the head, whatever it took, but I would always get up and keep going. And that's the only reason why I made the teams. And when you're running a company, there are times when things get tough and you have to keep going. Otherwise, you don't eat. There's no other backup option. You know, it's you. That's why I think the venture capital game has been so dangerous for entrepreneurs over the last, you know, 10 years or something. Because there's a lot of people that I know personally that have gone on this whole venture capital route where their entire goal is just to raise more capital. It's not about creating value. It's just raise more money, raise more money, raise more money. And then they hope that in those raise cycles, they can start to create value. And it's sort of like, well, we have an idea and we've got, you know, some team guys We've got no money. And some people, with all due respect to them, some people have no choice. They have to raise the money because money is lifeblood of the business. Mm-hmm. I think I'm quite unique in the fact that I didn't need to raise money. 
I feel sorry in some regard for the real entrepreneurial types that have no choice but to continuously raise capital because their dreams are yeah, it's a hamster wheel and their dreams are basically for sale. Yeah. And by the time they actually start to make things work, you know, they own 5% of the business and they're just beholden to this crazy board that they've had to grow. And their entrepreneurial blood or the energy that's taken to get to that point, it kind of feels a bit dwindled by that stage, right? It's just part of this big machine. Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay, well, listen, thanks for coming on the show. It's been interesting, actually. I, I love your yeah, take on so. Snowden. And the abolishment of the opulent office. That's my big takeaway. I do like that. <laughs> That's good. Thank you very much. I really appreciate talking to you guys. So what did you think of that? All the way down in New Zealand. <laughs> I love it. I love it. International stuff. You know, well, our audience and our guests are from all over the world, as it is. You know, there's no boundaries anymore. To the knowledge and the industry that we're in, I love Brandon's passion, his enthusiasm, his vision, you know, really for where he wants to take Tether, his company, and good on him for doing that. He had some really good points that I really liked about this concept of a work sanctuary. I thought was really useful. You know, Adam, I'm in a position where I can look back. So 20 years ago, we talked about this during the interview. You know, when I would stand up in front of a crowd and I would talk about nanotechnology and how indoor environmental quality was related to the health of the environment and by connection, the health of the occupants. I was talking back then about flexible screens. 90% of the audience would look at you like, what the F are you talking? You're oh, like, smoking. what are you smoking? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. what are you smoking, right? And so here we are. Sometimes it takes a few decades for stuff like that to come to fruition. But, you know, the writing was on the wall. And so when I get to talk to guys like Brandon, you know, with you, just it validates the stuff that we saw coming a long, long time yeah. ago. I mean, I hope all the success in the world for him because I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting, right? So the future that you and I saw coming sort of 30, 40 years ago, yeah. it's just been slow coming, but it's coming, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's just been a slow journey. What I liked about Brandon was that he said, yeah, I've got no industry experience. I just came in here knowing the benefit of not knowing and being crushed by all the yeah, yeah. and corruption and like... Yeah lobbying that goes on here is an advantage, right? He has an advantage because yeah. he's fresh and he's not letting the existing sort of establishment knock him down. I love that. Yeah. Abolishment of the opulent office. I love that saying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the power suit, the BMW and the corner glass office are going away. I truly believe that. Yeah. When I sold my company to the European company, the guy that I negotiated the deal with, at the time, was developing the set of new plans for the corporate office. He asked us to do the design work on the yeah. HVAC system, right? And it was like, what was the Amanda, what was her name who had all the shoes? What was her name? She was Marco? No, what? I can't remember, some of the South American dictator. And oh, Amanda Marcos, the Filipino yeah, there, first lady. There, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And I'm looking at this, and it's got this huge balcony that overlooks the front lawn of the, you know, the new office. Got the executive suite and the executive bathroom. It's only him. <laughs> and you know, the great big board. I'm trying to remember off my memory, but the executive part of that office was probably 20% of the building. You know, and it was just like, are you kidding me? It's a monument to ego, mostly. Anything like that. Yeah. This is where the edifice complex comes from, right? It's a monument to ego. <laughs> yeah, I remember when you first came up with the name of the show. I just, oh, this is so good. I'm in, Adam. <laughs> you got me with the title of the show. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the, the other thing I love that you said, he said, what would your building say if it could speak to you? Mm, right? So yeah. most buildings in Canada would say, why didn't you spend more money on me? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Do a if better only, job. Yeah. If you only had put money here, here, and here, I would be happy to report to you that this environment is sustainable. It's enabling you to be less stressed. It's enabling you to not have to worry about environmental control systems, get into arguments with family members. That's the message it would send. Yeah, I mean, I, he's really onto something down there. And his plan is to scale it. He's almost using sort of New Zealand as an R&D hothouse. Sure um, he is. Yeah, and yeah. he's sort of through that period now. And I think, you know, once he's got the, the issues tuned and tweaked out, that's something that can scale out North America, Europe, for sure. Yeah. The market is huge. Absolutely huge. How much social housing is there in the US and Canada? Oh, my God. It's nuts. The numbers are just amazing. And that's the other benefit, right? He came in with that 
non-construction, non-property mindset, looking for scale, because all entrepreneurs ultimately look for scale. And for him, we didn't quite get into his background and his Bitcoin stuff, but yeah. clearly that's a big part of his ability yeah. to launch and to find two clients right off the gate. That's, as you know, when you take over... It's not I remember, dream, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I remember I had bought the business, one of the businesses we bought, and I remember the very first thing people said to me, are you going to change the name? Why the hell would I change the name? It's got already goodwill. But the second thing that hit me was when we first got our first check from something that we had contributed in the industry. And I had that check framed for a long, long time, you know, because it was the reward, right? That yeah. we got. It's a we symbolic kind of thing, right? For him to come out of the gate with two big clients like he did is awesome. I liked his comment about know his music to his ears. <laughs> He's what I call like a true, pure entrepreneur, right? Absolutely. He's the sort of person you could parachute in anywhere and he'd be running the show after a short period of time. Yeah, well, that's what you were saying some of that on an earlier show about how this guy would pick his employees and parachute them into a city, make yeah. it no money, nothing, and they would make it survive. Yeah, by this know? time, they'd be clothed and seven by the evening. They'd be running the show. They'd be a little cool yeah. day time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I nearly screamed out bingo because he came out early with, Bitcoin, IoT, if he'd have said 5G, I was going to scream bingo at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, interesting times, right? He has a puzzle that he's solving and each piece of that puzzle he's building up with people that he hires, the way he understands the marketplace, the way he's bringing these things together. So good on him. I do know he's hiring now some built environment talent. One of the big innovations he's bringing, I think, is there's this thing here it's monitoring metadata, not personal data. And if you add in things like dimension and glass and size, just a few things, the insight that can come from that is different and far more valuable. And that I've not seen anybody try and do that yet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Given it context, right? Given the mm. data context. It's one thing to take a reading. What is the reading actually reading? Yes. Yeah, okay, it's measuring temperature. But what is about the space that's providing that temperature? That's where the value is. He's a smart guy and I wish him all the success in the world. And I do like to see, because when I see people like Brandon and his company, I see disruption in a good way. Yeah, It's coming in, him or someone, they're going to disrupt this industry and for the better. They're going to take it forward, add insight, add value, add knowledge, because there's a knowledge component to that as well, right? That comes as an output from that. I love that. Well, we've now had a couple of guests on now from New Zealand, both of them disruptors, which is yes. our, that's, that's, we love that. We love yeah. disruption. In many ways, the country of New Zealand is an outlier when you look at relative to other parts of the world, right? And they've evolved on their own terms and they're experiencing the results of the decisions that they made, realizing that disruption is now necessary, but that disruptive voice is now penetrating our world. We're getting to hear their view based on what they're experiencing. And they're right. You know, We can learn a lot from their disruption. And just think about the context of that, Rep. So in 1980, when I started work, the thought of being able to communicate easily with an innovator in New Zealand and that person export that idea seamlessly across the globe for zero dollars mm. almost was just like Star Trek, right? <laughs> it was just like, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, now, yeah. you know, a great idea in New Zealand, if it's got... Currency can spread. That's amazing. I love that. I have to admit, I am a young man trapped in an old dude's body. I've never thought yeah, I'd love to see this all roll out, you know. You know, so between Rochelle and Brandon, there's another guy down there, Elrin, who's an architect down there working with the Passive House down there. Another guy that went down there as disrupting. There's a lot of voices in that area. We're able to tap into it. So, you know, we're grateful for that opportunity for sure. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. Yeah. Okay, man, I feel quite pumped up now. So I'll see you on the next one. Adam, take care, man. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Robert, I sure have. 
I think blue rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there.